What you are about to hear is a fictional dramatization of a car accident and Brian Moreland's internal reactions to it, the reactions of his parts to that accident and its effects on him over time. So I'm going to invite you to listen with care and with prudence. If you have unresolved trauma responses around car accidents, please be thoughtful. Think about whether or not it's wise to continue. And now, out to James Fiedler, our roving KDDT reporter coming to us live from the scene of a terrible accident earlier this evening, a really difficult story that we have been following for you. James, what do you have for us? Terry, I'm here just off the shoulder of I-94 westbound, about four miles west of Miles City, near mile marker 142. Earlier this evening, an eastbound Ford F-250 pickup crossed the median into oncoming westbound traffic, striking a Honda Odyssey minivan at full speed and sending it careening through the guardrail and rolling down this shallow embankment. In the minivan were a 37-year-old man, a 33-year-old woman, and four children ranging from about 9 years old to 2 years old. From this angle, you can see how damaged this minivan was, nearly crushed as they're winching it up onto the wrecker. Montana State Police have just confirmed that this was a fatal accident, that one of the children, about five years old, has died of massive head injuries. The man and two of the children have been airlifted to St. Alexis Trauma Center in Bismarck. No word on their condition right now. That is tragic, James. What do we know about the others? Terry, we have some good news too. The woman was able to walk away from the wreck. EMTs used the jaws of life to break open the back of the minivan and to rescue the other two children who have been transported by ambulance to Bismarck. The 45-year-old driver of the pickup was shaken up and taken to Holy Rosary Hospital in Miles City, apparently with minor injuries. No one else was in the truck. James, what do we know about the cause of this accident? The investigation is ongoing, Terry. As you can see, driving conditions were also difficult. The rain is coming down here. There is also some question about driver fatigue in the driver of the truck. No word yet on any charges that might be filed, but it's likely. A source told me that the pickup driver's license has been revoked for a second DUI. There is no official word yet on whether alcohol or drugs were involved in this crash. Thank you, James, and we will continue to follow this story for you. Our hearts and thoughts go out to all those involved in the crash. We wish them a rapid recovery. Now, on to Jeff Springer with sports and the surprising finish of the Grizz's matchup with the Idaho State Bengals. Jeff, tell us what happened in Washington Grizzly Stadium today in the rain. We are together in this great adventure, this podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. We are journeying together. I'm honored to be able to spend this time with you. I'm Dr. Peter Malinowski, clinical psychologist, and we are taking on the tough topics that matter to you. We bring the best of psychology and human formation, harmonizing it with the eternal truths of the Catholic faith. Interior Integration for Catholics is part of our broader outreach, Souls and Hearts, bringing the best of psychology grounded in a Catholic worldview to you and the rest of the world through our website, soulsandhearts.com. Today's episode, number 83, is titled The Internal Dance of Healthy Grief. It's released on August 30th, 2021. You just heard a reenacted story about Brian Moreland, and I'll be bringing that story in throughout today's episode to add depth to add examples to the concepts. So I encourage you to review the last episode, episode 82. If you haven't listened to it, that one was called The Many Faces of Grief Inside Us. That episode goes over what happens to our parts when we experience grief. The experiences I'm about to describe are not the parts themselves. Remember, a part is separate. It's independent. It's like a little personality within us. And each part has its own unique roles in our lives. 
Each part has its own emotions, its own body sensations, its own needs, its own assumptions, guiding beliefs, its own typical thoughts, intentions, desires, attitudes, impulses, interpersonal style. Each part has its own worldview, its own image of God, its own understanding of self. So there's more than just one factor. I have to emphasize that over and over again. It's not just one emotion. It's not just one desire. It's not just one impulse. It's not just some transient internal state. Rather, a part is a whole constellation of these qualities, and parts endure over time, even if the part doesn't happen to be in conscious awareness in the moment. So, I want to talk today about what Derek Scott has done in adapting the dual process model of bereavement. We're going to unpack this, we're going to get into this, This is a little more conceptually demanding, but I think it's really important to to capture the fullness of what happens in a grieving response. So Margaret Strobe and Hank Shutt originally laid out the dual process model of bereavement in a 1999 article in the journal Death Studies. That article was called The Dual Process Model of Coping with Bereavement, Rationale and Description. And what's what Derek Scott did now remember Derek Scott is an IFS therapist he's an author he's an expert on grief he really has taken the IFS model internal family systems model and done more than anyone else has with grief Derek Scott adapted this dual process model and mapped it out onto IFS right internal family systems and what he argues is that in a grieving response there are two clusters of parts two groups of parts two sets of parts with two very different foci one group of parts is focused on the loss that group of parts is looking back to the past it's looking at what happened it looks at what was taken away what was lost That's one group. That's the loss-focused group. And then another cluster of parts is focused on restoration, looking to the future, managing the demands of the here and now in our lives, moving on in a sense, right? So we're looking at these two clusters in this dual process model of bereavement. And what we covered in the last episode, episode 82, were the parts that were focused on the loss or the loss cluster. Remember those managers that present with disbelief and numbness and sadness and guilt? And then I added spiritual bypassing. And then also the exiles that experience depression, the missing and yearning, the ones that protest in anger, the ones that experience guilt, the ones that are powerless and carry the despair and resignation. And then also I added one of the exiles that carry shame, right? So that's one cluster. That's what we talked about last time. And then the other cluster focuses on restoration. So these are new parts. These are, these are parts we haven't yet discussed, but these parts are dealing with the new life we have after the loss, with the difficulties, the complexities, what's going on in the life of the bereaved, the changes that have happened as a result of the loss. These are the parts that have to adjust to the new reality, right? And this conforms somewhat to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stage of acceptance, Colin Park's phase of reorganization and recovery that we talked about in episode 81. So what they do these parts in the restoration cluster, they attend to new life changes, they take on new roles, they handle new relationships, and they also help us to distract from grief. They also help us help us to take our minds away from the grief through distraction, and they also help us to avoid grief. The dual process model of coping with bereavement that Derek Scott has adapted argues that these two clusters, the loss-focused cluster and the restoration-focused cluster, they alternate, they oscillate as mourning proceeds. And it's this moving back and forth between focusing on the loss and focusing on restoration. It's this dance, right, between the mourning and the grieving on the one hand and the restoration and the moving forward on the other hand 
that allows for the reestablishment of a new healthy normal where our grief is integrated into our life narrative. So at times, the focus is going to be much more on the loss. It's going to be much more on the past. It's going to be much more on the mourning. And at other times, it's going to be about handling the things that need to be handled. It's about integrating what is going on in our present day, post-loss, adjusting to that new reality, this moving back and forth. And so this oscillation or this alternating between these two clusters helps us to dose how much we can take of the grief and also to dose how much we can take of moving on, right? So there's a respite from one when we're in the other one and then it shifts back to the other one and there's a respite from the first one, right? So that's an integral part of coming out of the intensity of grief. This is really familiar to us in IFS because basically we're talking about parts, right? Different parts have different roles in our system. Some of them much more focused on loss, others much more focused on restoration. The dance between these two clusters of parts initially tends to be more weighted toward the loss. And that's understandable because those loss-focused parts are gonna come up immediately after the loss. They're gonna be prominent after that in most cases. And then over time, the focus on restoration becomes more prominent and those parts take a greater role in the system as the person leans into what might be considered the new normal. So let's go back, let's illustrate this. Let's pick up the story with Brian Moreland. He's the father of this family that had this tragic car wreck. And now he's at the trauma hospital in Bismarck. Brian has been awake for about the last two hours as the effect of his sedatives have worn off. And we're going to start by looking at his manager parts. So let's pick up the narrative. Hi, Brian. They told me you're awake and asking questions. How you doing? I'm Dr. Philip Marzone, neurologist here at St. Alexius Trauma Center. We've transported you back to Bismarck. You've had a cranial fracture, some coupe contra coupe symptoms, some mild brain swelling, and you've had a concussion. We've kept you sedated and unconscious for about 24 hours, but neurologically you're stabilizing. Your scans look good for what you've been through and they're getting better. It's still early, so there's no guarantees, but there's reasons to be hopeful for a full recovery. Minor fraction of your left tibia, lots of bruising, but you were lucky given the seriousness of that accident. How is, how is Jessica? How are my kids, Doc? I know you got a lot of questions. I totally get that. There's a lot to catch up on. Your wife is fine. She's been released with only minor injuries. Same thing with Amy, your daughter. Ben has a broken clavicle and his shoulder is going to need some reconstructive surgery, a couple of pins, he's going to be fine. We've got a great orthopedic team here that are going to see him through it all. Your toddler Audra had a broken femur and a broken arm and some bruising, but she'll also be fine. We're going to release her in a few days. She's been asking for you. What about Jeffy? What about my four-year-old? What about him, Jeffy, my four-year-old son? Brian, that, that was a massive wreck. I'm surprised you and your family came out of it as well as you did, and that's something to be thankful for. Um, uh, Mr. Moreland, your son Jeff, he didn't make it. He died instantly of extensive head trauma. There's nothing that anyone could do for him. Uh, Brian, I, I've got to go. I'm called to the spinal cord unit stat. There's a lot. That's. This is a lot to take in. Let's not go too fast with it. Let us know if you want a grief counselor or a chaplain. You can ask one of the nurses. We can make sure we send them around. All right, so now this is coming from one of Brian's protectors who's using disbelief as a way to cope with the immediate intensity of the loss. And this protector is trying to buy him time, trying to soften the blow so that he's less overwhelmed with the implications of the loss of his son, Jeffy. So let's listen to what this disbelieving protector says. 
no, this can't be true. This can't have happened. Jeffy is not dead. Jeffy did not die. There has to be a mistake. Doctors make mistakes all the time. It happens all the time. It's okay. He's not dead. Jeffy's not dead. So there you see kind of a, an example of a part in the immediate aftermath of getting this information that his son didn't make it. Uh, there's this, this, this disbelief, right, which is one of those manager parts that comes up when we're in the loss cluster, when we're focused on the loss. What about numbness, right? That's another one of these coping strategies that managers in the loss focused cluster take on. And this clip will give you a sense of how a numbing protector can come in to deaden the intensity of the memory of the accident. We're going to now enter into Brian's experience as he flashes back to the accident and then a part of him just numbs out. So you can see there's this sort of just complete numbing out, kind of represented by that pulsing hum, the experience of a protector that comes in to just deaden everything down. What happens with depression and sadness? Remember we talked about that one as being one of the ways that a manager copes with this whole sense of loss, focusing on the loss. So later, for Brian, a manager part is dealing with the sadness. He's starting to experience the sadness of the loss. And let's listen to how that part might sound. Jeffy is dead. My, my boy, my son, my beautiful boy, Jeffy. Jeffy, I love you. Okay, so you can see there's this, there's this, uh, you know, sadness now being experienced in conscious awareness. We're not in the numbing anymore. We're not in the um, in the disbelief anymore. We're starting to experience the sadness. It's still in that loss cluster that we've been talking about. Well, one of the ones I added, this is not in Derek Scott's list, but I think it's important, is this whole concept of spiritual bypassing. And this came from John Wellwood. We talked about it in the last episode, but it's the tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. So how might spiritual bypassing, how might that look in a part that's dealing with this loss cluster, that's in this loss cluster, dealing with loss. It could sound like this. Okay, okay. God knows what's best here. We're just going to accept it. Jeffy's dead, but it's okay. Jeffy is in heaven among the saints. He's little Saint Jeffy now. It's okay. Everything's okay. And I've still got Jess and Amy and Ben and Tim with me, and we'll make it. We're just going to move on from here. We're going to move on from here on out, not looking back, just keeping our eyes looking forward step by step. Right, so... What you can see here is that this part is not really addressing anything with integration of the loss. It's looking to just sort of get over it, jump over it, paper over it by using some spiritual, some spiritual practices, spiritual beliefs to basically kind of avoid doing the emotional work. And that's understandable, again, in the short run. Again, it buys time, but it's not an effective long-term strategy. Let's take a look at what some of Brian's exiles may be doing in this loss-oriented cluster. Remember, there's managers, and we talked about the managers, but there's also some exiles in this loss-oriented cluster, including parts that are really missing or yearning for his son, Jeffy. Well, what do those parts sound like? Oh, my son, I just want to hug you one more time. I just want to hug you. One more time. Jeffy, I miss you so much, my son. I can hardly go on living without you. 
okay you see that there's now this this missing this yearning that can be so intense that it can overwhelm which is why sometimes parts that carry this intensity are are, are shifted out of awareness wanting missing again a very common response in loss so what's another one well another one that derek scott tells us about is protest or anger and what that what might that sound like All right, well let's let's talk about it so let's hear a part that may be caught up in the protest and anger right oh my god jeffy's dead you took him from me. Oh my God, why did you do this to me? I'll never see Jeffy again. Why did you do this to me? How am I supposed to live on now that he's dead? My boy is dead. He was only four years old. God. <sighs> Mr. Omniscient Being, do you have any idea of what you've done to me? How is this just? How is this loving to me, Mr. Almighty God, who supposedly loves us with an infinite love? What a crock of You can see now that that anger welling up, right, may have been repressed or suppressed by other parts because it's so threatening, but it finds an outlet sometimes in the grief, right? These are real emotions, but oftentimes they're held by just one part. So we got that anger, a protest part. Another exiled part can carry guilt. What might that sound like in this situation for Brian? Let's see how a part that's carrying the guilt around this issue might sound. I froze for an instant, just an instant. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I should have hit the brakes immediately and spun hard right. I could have broken through the guardrail and went down the embankment, and that would have been so much better than the head-on. I could have avoided the head-on collision. If we'd have just left a few minutes later, if I hadn't been in such a hurry to get out so that we could catch the end of the game at home, we would not have been there when the pickup crossed over. And so there you see a part really carrying guilt about perceived mistakes that he made in driving the car well another one is powerlessness despair and resignation what might that look like well part that's carrying powerlessness despair and resignation might sound something like this there was nothing i could do there was nothing anyone could have done the guy was drunk it happened so fast there is no way i could have avoided him And then, uh, Derek Scott doesn't include this one in his list, but I think it's important to include, and that is uh, an exiled part that carries shame. And this goes beyond guilt. It's, it's not just that I did something wrong. It has to do with something along the lines of I'm bad, I'm inadequate. My identity is fundamentally flawed, fundamentally worthless. And that might sound something like this from a part of Brian. This happens because I'm not the father I should be. I've never been the father I should be to Jeffy or the other kids. I'm too broken. I'm too wounded. I'm so inadequate, just like my father. I turned out just like my old man, in spite of swearing I would never be like him. Okay, so there we've got these parts that are in that cluster that's focused on loss. All the parts we've discussed so far are focused on the loss. That includes the manager parts that carry disbelief, numbness, that carry depression, that spiritually bypass. That includes the exiles that carry the missing and yearning, the protest and the anger, the guilt, the powerlessness, the despair, the resignation, the shame. But this other cluster is really important, and this is the cluster that deals with the new complexities of life for the bereaved that are, that are brought about by the loss, right? These are the parts that are adjusting to the new reality. This conforms to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stage, stage of acceptance and Colin Park's phase of reorganization and recovery. And so these parts, one of, you know, these parts attend to life changes. For example, there might be a manager part that's focused on the future, and we can hear what that part would have to say. You know, Jess and I, we really worked well together on replacing that odyssey. 
And buying cars has always been a painful process for me, but this time we did it together and it went really smoothly. So you can see attending to life changes and then new roles, new relationships, continuing bonds. What might that sound like from a part here in this restoration cluster, a manager part? It might sound like this. It's a beautiful thing. Amy and I are taking a run every night together. She wants to be a distance runner like I was, and we can talk. She's 13, and she wants to spend time with me. And I'm reading to Audra every night, and soon she'll get her casts off. It's so good to spend time with the kids. Tim and I were playing chess, and how he laughed last night when he beat me for the first time. And I wasn't throwing the game either. And Jess, Jess and I were pulling together in a whole new way. Right, so here you see a part focused on new roles in the family, new connections with family members, right? Hanging on to these bonds, strengthening them. And in the restoration cluster, we also have parts that distract us from grief. And what might that sound like? What might a part like that sound like for Brian? It might sound like this. The Grizzlies are taking on the University of Northern Colorado this Saturday. The Grizz is going to crush the Bears at home in Missoula. They're going to blow them out. The Bears won't have a chance. That will be a good game. And Jimmy and Dave can come over. We'll make a night of it. Jess has offered to make us tacos. That's going to be great. So you can see Part getting excited about something, taking a break from the grief, moving towards restoration, reconnecting with friends. That's part of the restoration cluster that alternates with the lost cluster. And then finally, Derek Scott gives us this avoidance of grief. You know, what, what might avoidance of grief sound like for Brian? It could be something like this. I'm not ready to go to Jeffy's gravesite yet. I know Jess goes, I'm not ready. It's not time for me yet. Not yet. Someday I'll go, but not yet. Okay, so there we've covered the restoration cluster. And again, what I want to emphasize is, is what's so important is this, this alternating between the two. So we don't have a steady diet of just focusing on the loss, or we don't have just a steady diet of focusing on restoration, moving on, but that we move back and forth. That's the internal dance among our parts. Well, I'm going to take this next section straight from Derek Scott. This is that section in his article entitled Grief and IFS, Mapping the Terrain. You can find it on his website, ifsca.ca. And he's basically got these seven points. He says, compassion heals. And these are his seven points. Number one, compassion heals. Bringing compassion to another invites their compassion for their own parts. So one of the things that happens is that when you're compassionate, when you're recollected, when you can be with another person in a really wholesome way, that helps them to be compassionate with their own parts. Second thing, the more significant the loss, the more profound disruption to the system. Makes sense, right? The more significant the loss, the greater the impact, the greater the disruption to our systems. Third point, the system responses to the loss may be manager-led, firefighter-driven, or characterized by erupting exiles. All three roles can be really, really active. Right? Managers could be proactively controlling. Exiles could be jailbreaking and bursting through with the intensity of their experience. Firefighters may be reacting to those exiles, trying to distract us from the intensity of those exiles' pain. All those can be going on in a lost response within a system. Fourth thing, the protective system may be in disarray and unable to function normally, resulting in the client feeling particularly vulnerable. We can get really whacked upside the head by a loss and by the grief response to that loss. Fifth, the protective system may become entrenched because of the perceived threat from or to the exiles. Right, so remember, the exiles are the parts that have been banished from conscious awareness and carry the intensity of the experience that otherwise might overwhelm or flood our system. And that protective system can really dig in. It might dig in on the loss side, 
or it might dig in on the protective side and get rigid, right? And that's going to inhibit the recovery. Sixth point from, from Derek Scott. Present loss experiences may trigger parts connected to former loss events seeking healing. That happens a lot. The current loss can trigger, activate all kinds of unresolved loss and grief from the past, going back to childhood. And finally, unburdening parts in the loss cluster will facilitate healing and greater resilience in terms of subsequent losses. So if we can really help those parts that carry the burden of loss, that carry the burden of unresolved grief, that will help us in the future when we experience the losses that are coming up for us in future days and years. All right. So, you know, two we, two episodes ago, in episode 81, we looked at the stage and phase models of grief trajectories. That was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief, you know, the denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. We looked at Colin Park's model of shock and numbness, yearning and searching, disorganization and despair, reorganization and recovery. We looked at how the empirical trajectories of grief didn't really support a linear progression through different stages or phases. They're still valuable to help us understand how parts might be reacting in a given place at a given time. But What's happening with this IFS understanding of the unity and the multiplicity of the person is that we can see different parts reacting in different ways at the same time. We've got this really nuanced, this really multifaceted understanding of the human person who can be experiencing different things at different times, some of it in conscious awareness, some of it not. And in this episode, we looked at the internal dance of our parts. We looked at how parts weave back and forth, those in the loss cluster alternating with those in the restoration cluster, different points of view, different goals, but working together ideally in a way that brings the person along a healthy course. Right? And why are we looking at all this grieving stuff? Again, why are we focusing on this? It's to increase our capacity to love. That's why. I want you to be able to understand yourself. I want you to be able to understand those close to you who are in grief in more than one dimension, more than two dimensions, but in five dimensions like we discussed in the last episode, episode 82. That was when we talked about the many faces of grief inside us. We talked about how to look at people in many more dimensions. So I want to close this little section out by a quote from Derek Scott. I think it's so important. I want to take it verbatim from his article. And he says this, grief has its own timetable. There's a lot of wisdom in the system regarding when to allow access to affect-laden parts. There are, of course, frustrated and patient parts that want it to be over so that the system can return to normal functioning. There may be postponing managers, see complicated grief, respecting protective parts, saying we're not going there now, and asking about their concerns, as well as when would be a good time to go there and what would need to change to allow access provides us with an understanding of how to best work with the system, end quote. We want to be able to work with all of the parts of the system. We want to reach out in compassion. We want to be able to be with all of the parts of the system. We don't want to align with some parts and shutting other parts down. We don't want to get involved in trying to steamroll parts or anything like that in the grief process. We don't want to try to fit the person's grieving process into some preconceived notion that we have of how it ought to be. We want to give each part the time and the space and the care that it needs. So we need to be patient. We need to accept parts as they are. That doesn't mean we endorse all of their impulses. It doesn't mean that we endorse all their desires. You can check out episode 66 of this podcast. It's acceptance versus endorsement, a critical difference in Catholic marriages, gets into that difference between accepting a part, where that part's at, and endorsing everything that it does or that it wants. A lot of gratitude to Derek Scott for his work on IFS and grief. You can check out his work at ifsca.ca. And a final quote from Dana Arcury 
from the book Sacred Wandering, Growing Your Faith in the Dark, she said, quote, For those struggling with grief, there's no timetable. It can last months, years, or longer. This is normal. Give yourself permission to take however long it may be to fully heal from your loss. End quote. Well, let's talk about some Catholic aspects of grief. Let's talk about how we look at this through a Catholic lens. Remember, grief is the price we pay for loving. And there's one path, one way that people respond to grief, one way that Catholics respond to grief that leads us away from love because we believe it's too much pain, we believe it's too much vulnerability, too much suffering, too much self-protection. And this can lead to bitterness, anger, coldness, distance, and smallness of heart, right? Smallness, hardness of heart. Basically, this path says, I will never love that way again. There is no way I can see this loss as a good thing. There is no way that I can see it as a gift. This is an unmitigated evil. There is no good in it, right? That's one path. A second path, a second option is a path that leads to deeper intimacy, that leads toward love, that leads toward reinvesting even more deeply in intimacy and relationships. And in order to do that, we might really have to take on God. We might really have to wrestle. We might really have to wrestle with this problem of evil. We may need to challenge our own God image issues, right? We may need to break out of our comfort zones and realize that being hurt by loss is not the same thing as being harmed by loss. Right? There's a difference between being hurt and being harmed. A lot of times we conflate those two. We treat them as though they're the same thing. Not everything that hurts us, not everything that causes pain actually causes us harm. Those are two different things. And in the secular literature, the secular professional literature, for many years now, for decades now, the positive aspects of grief have been recognized. Now, I don't want to be Pollyannish about grief on the one hand, but also I don't want to be overly pessimistic about grief either. In an interesting blog post entitled The Upside of Loss, How My Mom's Death Made Me a Better Person, Melissa Cultraro said, quote, Here's the thing. Losing my mom as a teen helped me discover a drive and a joy in myself that I never thought I had. Grieving isn't solely about pain and suffering, I've learned. Sometimes there's an upside to loss. End quote. And Shauna Hoy said this, quote, Heartache purged layers of baggage I didn't know I carried. Gifts hide under the layers of grief. End quote. Elizabeth Kubler Ross wrote the following quote, The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. End quote. And from C.S. Lewis, no stranger to grief, he, C.S. Lewis said this, quote, Bereavement is a universal and integral part of our experience of love. It follows marriage as normally as marriage follows courting or as autumn follows summer. End quote. Well, let's look at this whole field of post-traumatic growth. We're just going to look at this briefly. Um, this is the field that looks at the benefits of adverse life events, the benefits of trauma. And the pioneers in this field have been Richard Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun. 1996 article, really a seminal article in the Journal of Traumatic Stress, introduced 
the post-traumatic growth inventory, and summarized research in the field from the 1980s and 1990s that documented at least some positive impact resulting from negative events or traumas. And this included heavy-duty stuff like rape, incest, bereavement, terminal cancer, HIV infection, heart attacks, natural disasters, combat, and the Holocaust. So they found that there were really five factors. They did factor analytic studies that looked at the underlying structural organization of the upside to traumatic events, and they found five factors that accounted for a significant amount of the variance in their inventory. And what were those? Number one had to do with relating to others improved personal relationships, increased pleasure derived from being around people we love. Number two, embracing new possibilities, new opportunities, both at the personal level and at the professional level. Third, greater emotional strength and resilience, higher levels of personal strength. Fourth, greater spiritual connection. And that really consisted of a better understanding of spiritual matters and a stronger religious faith. And then fifth, a greater appreciation of life, a heightened sense of gratitude toward life, towards being alive. I really believe that the number one thing that helps people to get through grief is a belief that there is meaning and purpose, that there's growth, that there's a sense of mission, as opposed to there being a meaningless universe, right? If we really believe there's no purpose, that this, that this suffering had no meaning, no purpose, it had no upside, well, a good recovery from that is unlikely, right? Grief and loss they often identify what is our source of security. In attachment language, grief and loss shows us what our secure basis have been. Grief and loss may show us what we have overvalued in our lives, our career, our health, our money, even some of our relationships at the expense of the more important things. Right? All that's human is finite and death is real. God sometimes takes away our false basis of security, reveals to us the limitations of the safety that we've clung to. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his great little quote, Pain is God's Megaphone. That's not because God's a sadist, not because God enjoys watching people suffer, but because God wants to bring us to himself. He does not want us to put any other thing in front of him. Now, I'm going to invite you to an experiential exercise. There's going to be two parts to this experiential exercise. The first is just getting in touch with yourself, just creating space. And then the second part is going to be more focused on grief. And so again, I'm going to invite you to take what's helpful to you. Monitor if you're becoming revved up, moving into fight or flight, moving into this intense experience, experiencing flooding, right? Obviously that's not, the exercise is not being helpful to you. Discontinue it, stop. Let's work to reground. And the same thing if you find that you're numbing out, you're zoning out, you're exiting your window of tolerance to the downside, hypoarousal, shutting down, numbing out, that's not helpful either, right? So discontinue there. Something's obviously getting triggered, but this is going to start just really, really simple. So even if you've not done experiential exercises before, this one's going to be really basic, especially at the beginning here. Use these as are helpful to you. And this is also a helpful review for others, right? All of this is invitation. There are no commands. There's no orders to do anything. I invite you to do things. I suggest some things. Some of those invitations and suggestions are likely to be helpful, but others are not, right? So take what's helpful and useful to you and leave whatever's not helpful, whatever's not useful to you behind. It's up to you. You get to decide and you're free to stop at any time. All right, so I'm going to invite you 
and to, to choose a quiet and safe place to do this exercise. It's not something you should do while you're driving. It's not something you should do while you're cooking dinner or working out. We want all unnecessary electronics silenced, right? Phone, screens, TV. Just invite you to turn all that off. Close the doors. Make sure we don't have any pets crawling all over you, distracting. And get into a comfortable position, you know, seated comfortably. Maybe lying down if that's helpful to you. Whatever kind of position seems good for you. And I want you to know that you can shift around. You can move. Whatever seems to suit you, whatever's helpful to your body. And just begin to notice what's going on inside. And that may be new to you to really notice what's happening in your body. The body is good. God created it. God created us body and soul. We are embodied beings. We're body and soul composites. And just after making Adam's body out of the clay of the earth and fashioning Eve's body from Adam's rib, God breathed life into them. He animated their bodies with their immortal souls. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. It may help to close your eyes, if that's okay. Just notice what's going on in your body, what's drawing your attention. You can notice the feeling of your clothing on your skin. The inhaling and exhaling of your breath. We're just slowing things way down and noticing. Parts of you may feel warmer or cooler. Tingling sensations, possibly. The contact with the floor, with the furniture. Maybe those sensations are deeper inside. Sensations in your head or your shoulders, your stomach. Feelings in your heart. Could be tension in your muscles. Just noticing. Aches or pains. And you might be experiencing some distractions. It's okay. It's really common. If you can just gently allow your attention to come back to your body sensations. We don't want to force anything, though. Whatever you're sensing in your body, wherever you're sensing it, just noticing it. Just accepting that a body sensation is there. Just giving it space within you so that it can be, so that it can exist. Because the reality is, it does exist. We're just acknowledging that reality. 
Just being present with the body sensations. And maybe you can be curious about what's happening in your body. Maybe you can become more interested in what's going on in your body. So often we assume so much about our body sensations that we don't really notice them. We just gloss over things. We don't experience them as they actually are. Our attention is caught up in other things, not in our bodies. You can follow how some of your body sensations may change. Just going to invite you to experience gratitude for your body and gratitude for this time and space to connect more deeply with your body. From Psalm 139, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And now keeping the good things we've discovered, I'm just going to invite you to notice if it seems okay, and just check it out inside, to notice how accepting you are right now about grief. How open and curious you can be about your grief. Can you be open about your grief? Can you be curious? Or is there something in the way? Maybe a part of you is worried about your grief. Maybe a part of you has concerns about connecting in some way with grief. Remember, we can contract with parts so that they don't overwhelm. We ask our parts not to flood us with the intensity of their experience, not to overwhelm us with the intensity of their burdens. But if it's still hard to get in touch with anything unresolved about grief, that's okay. Maybe there's not a lot there. That's possible. Or maybe we need more time to work with your protectors. Those that are concerned about going there with your grief. And we honor and we want to honor that if that's the case. Grief might be the major thing going on inside you right now, the major trailhead. For some it is, but for some it's not. We never want to force an agenda in this kind of work. As I say the word grief, what happens in your body? Is there a part of your body that seems concerned with grief? That has some kind of connection with grief? Notice that. See if you can be with that. Witness what that part of you might want to share with you about the grief that it holds or that it experienced. With 
calmness and compassion, connection with our parts, your core self leading you. Just noticing. And go as far as it seems good and right for you to go right now with the permission of your protectors. You know, witnessing whatever it is that needs to be witnessed about grief. Body sensations, emotions, memories, images, assumptions, intentions, desires, impulses, whatever is going on inside around grief to the degree that it's safe. And a lot of gratitude towards parts for what they've shared, for what they've allowed you to experience, what they've allowed you to learn, for allowing themselves to be better known, even if it's just a little bit. You can work on this later in your check-ins with your parts. You know, you might begin to just try connecting with parts on a more regular basis if you don't have that in your plan. Following up on these trailheads, these significant findings when we do some of this exploratory experiential work, might be good to make a few notes. And I want to thank you for, for being with me in this exercise. And we'll just wrap this up with a little more silence just to allow you to tie up any loose ends that might be helpful to you and your parts. Now, in the next episode, episode 84, we are going to get into who this podcast is really for and what this podcast is all about. I've been reflecting on the mission of this podcast, on the purpose of this podcast, and I've been reflecting on you. Yes, you. I've been thinking about you, about all our listeners, and doing some deep discernment, not only about this podcast, but also about the communities that have grown up around it. The Resilient Catholics community, the Interior Therapist community. So in the next episode, I want to let you know all about what that discernment has led me to. But there's one thing I want to give you a heads up on now so that it doesn't come as a surprise to you. Starting in September, I'm going to reduce this podcast frequency from weekly to monthly. We're going to do podcasts once a month on the first Monday of the month. So tune in next week to find out all the whys and the wherefores for that. Okay, we're going to explain that in a lot of detail. Catholic mental health professionals, work with me. Join me in the interior therapist community at Souls and Hearts. Find out how you can be in one of my therapist groups. Those are starting in September. We are finalizing groups this week. So if you've been on the fence about that, get in touch. The ITC is all about working on your human formation. And therapists need their own human formation as much or even more than other people. We do this human formation through the lens of internal family systems and solidly grounded in our Catholic faith. Find out all the details at soulsandhearts.com backslash ITC. ITC stands for Interior Therapist Community. Email me with questions at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. Call me on my cell phone, 317-567-9594 to find out how we can work together. The Resilient Catholics Community at Souls and Hearts grew up around this podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. If you are committed to this podcast, especially if you resonated with the experiential exercise in today's episode, if this statement that we're going to monthly from weekly is causing you grief, well, 
I want you to learn about the Resilient Catholics community. Come with me. Come with us. Be a pioneer together with us on this pilgrimage. Come with us. Join us on the adventure, on this hard road to life, on this pilgrimage to human formation. Check it all out at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. Read about it. Check it out. The Resilient Catholics community, the RCC, has a lot more experiential exercises. It has office hours. It, you get a companion for daily connection. There's going to be weekly small group work in your company, your own personalized human formation plan tailored to your individual needs and based on your responses to our initial measures kits. There's so much that happens in the RCC. Registration is open each year in June and December. And so registration will open again on December 1st, 2021, but you can join our waiting list now at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. 51 people are already on the waiting list. They've gotten on since the last registration period closed on June 30th. And I will be emailing those on the waiting list from time to time, checking in with updates, special gifts, and being on the waiting list does not obligate you to join. So there's no obligation to get on that waiting list. Remember, I have my conversation hours on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can reach me on my cell phone, 317-567-9594. All of my podcast listeners have that option to discuss anything that you've heard in the podcast and how it's relevant to your life. And finally, I want you to pray for me, and I want you to pray for the other listeners. That's so important. And with that, we will invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us. A special thanks to Tim Kahn for the use of his hospital ambient noise under the attributions license at freesound.org.